Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Peace in the Middle East seems so important, and there are so many people addressing the problem from different directions. Today for Spirit in Action, we'll look at the Middle East from a relatively new and promising approach, the application of mimetics and spiral dynamics. My guest is Elza Malouf, and her new book is Emerge, The Rise of Functional Democracy and the Future of the Middle East. Elza is Lebanese-born and raised, living in the USA, and has put years of effort into the Build Palestine Initiative and is part of the Center for Human Emergence Middle East. We're going to join her on Skype shortly, but I want to start you off with some music, singing of peace in the Middle East. That's my wish, and my hope is that Elza Malu's efforts will lead to that peace. Here is the group, Emma's Revolution, and their song, Peace, Salam, Shalom, and then we'll join Elsa Malouf on Skype in Kuwait. Peace, Salam, Shalom, 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 Peace, Salam, Shalom.
Elsa, I'm delighted to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for inviting me, Mark. It's my pleasure. And it was my pleasure already to speak to your husband, Saeed Dalabani. I spoke with him a while ago about memonomics. Evidently, the whole memetics runs in your family. Did it precede your getting together, or was it something that came along after you two were together? No, actually, I went to the first integral leadership program in Boulder with Ken Wilbur, and everything was pointing at Don Beck. Dr. Beck. So I had to take a seminar with Dr. Beck. So I asked John Schmidt. He said he's doing a seminar in October. So I immediately signed up for October and Saeed caught up later. I invited him to a speech that Don was giving at Tustin Unity Church and he was in a daze because Don speaks uh, like big words. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Saeed was in a daze for, for a couple of days until he, I, I think he rewired his brain and he was able to understand him. So you and Saeed were already a couple before you started with memonomics. And... Yes, absolutely. And you come from Lebanon. And where is Saeed from again? Lebanon. Same city, how close, same tribe? It's like a mile apart. It, our town is very small, so it's, it's almost a mile apart. Oh. He went to school with my brothers. Ah, okay. And your brothers, yeah. therefore, approved of the two of you being together. I'm not sure, really. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I didn't care. <laughs> well, the book, again, is Emerge, The Rise of Functional Democracy and the Future of the Middle East. This is based on, built on a scaffolding that was constructed originally by Claire Graves and then Don Beck, Memonomics, Spiral Dynamics, and there's more names coming into it, Memetics. And uh, what Graves called the double helix, biopsychosocial systems, etc., etc. So that's why Dr. Beck called it uh, Spiral Dynamics. So you're building on top of that, and I, I see that you're adding levels to the whole theory. I have to say that when I read the introduction, you really yeah. grabbed me with some of your personal experience. And uh -huh. the one that grabbed me most is what you talked about starting law school, and then in the second year of law school, how things changed so dramatically for those who were part of Islam. Could you just share what that experience was for you? Yes, so I went to school with the would-be Hezbollah leaders. They were wearing, you know, jeans Nike, uh, and Nikes. And the next year, they came in with, you know, the button-up shirt in the style of the Iran Revolution. And they wouldn't shake my hand. They didn't play table tennis with us. They changed completely. So I, I suspected there's something going on. And they, they grew their beards as well. So I knew there, there's change in, in these people because the Shia sect was the really oppressed sect. For example, I, I think I mentioned in the book, the son of a Zaim, a clan leader, was going to school. People from the Shia sect would come to him and say, we need to send our kids to school. And he would say, why? My son is going to school. Why do you need to go to school? So once the Shia revolution happened in Iran, they gained a lot of power and they didn't want to change that power. 
and they they change their appearances, of course, but also they change their mindset and their value systems. They became a closed blue, meaning order-driven closed blue. And we'll get to what those colors and levels mean. Sure. If people have listened to my interview with Saeed, they'll already have a pretty good idea. But they'll get in much greater detail in the book, Emerge. So you saw something happening, a changing of levels. I don't think, at that point, you didn't yet know about memonomics, spiral dynamics, all of this, this idea, this way of conceiving the universe. No, of course not. But I had an intuitive sense of what spiral dynamics was. Well, let's get a brief overview of what it is. Of course, people are going to read the book if they really want to understand it. But could you give me an idea of what spiral dynamics, mimetics, what these are all about? And then we're going to find out how they apply in the Middle East, in Palestine in particular, where you've been doing your work. So it's a developmental model that says we were clans, then we became tribes, and then we became feudal lords. And then we became nations or we were ruled by religions. Yeah, some form of communism. And we have the enterprising system or the so-called American dream, the 2.3 kids, uh, <laughs> the boat. And it's so-called right, right now, unfortunately. And eventually we needed to look at ourselves. We asked, is that everything there is to life? So we needed to go inside ourselves and become self-reflective and understand our psyche, our shadow, and understand more about who we are as human beings. And I think 10 to 12% are mostly in, in the green system, are egalitarian. And eventually we have the yellow system or its flex flow, it's systemic, it has a whole systems approach. And eventually we become a holistic nations or what I call global commons, where everyone owns the land. We share properties, but this system is yet to emerge uh, at this point. So this is in a nutshell, the evolution of the spiral. A meme is a cultural gene. It has the DNA of the culture. The thing that helped me think of this right away was I think that probably Claire Graves spoke of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the seven levels. You start from something very basic, very individual, small group, and it evolves into larger and larger sensibilities and a wider world. And so as you go through the colors that are associated with this clan, tribe, and so on, the beige, purple, red, blue, uh -huh. orange, green, yellow, and maybe turquoise. We see. And hopefully turquoise, yes. <laughs> so it's a way of describing social evolution a way in which we build and refine and we cycle up. We have healthy and unhealthy expressions of each of these levels. And yes. right now, I think probably we think that most of the U.S. is in what we call the blue. It's, it's a good, stable, we have a national consciousness, but it's not very dynamic in terms of pushing the frontiers. You then go to the next level, the strategic level, the orange level, which we maybe think happened preponderantly in the 1980s. There's some green in there, which can be connected with green politics, egalitarian ways of thinking. And all of that, we're always a mixture in society. Every society is a mixture. Yes. You, you grew up in Lebanon. When you were growing up in Lebanon, what was the kind of distribution you think you saw in Lebanese society? 
It's really about value system. So even though we were civilizations apart from Beirut, my home had a, an orange value system because my mom especially tried to nurture my individuality. And I grew up with three older brothers. So you can imagine what, what's happening in my household. But we had scientists uh, in the Malou family, we had business people, uh, we had uh, bishops, we had bankers, especially women, they were bankers, and they were very progressive in our Malou family. And my mom tried to nurture my individuality. And what about the society around you in Lebanon? Was Lebanon largely at the red, the blue, it's, the orange it's, levels? No, it's purple-red. Well, Lebanese outside Lebanon, they're very strategic, very, very enterprising. But in Lebanon, they, uh, you know, because we went through a 17-year civil war, we had to protect ourselves. And I think Lebanon needs a collective therapy uh, <laughs> in the near future, really. But they're mostly purple, they're clannish. For example, today I just heard in my hometown, the Fatouche family, they beat a reporter and her cameraman. And the, the, the army is surrounding the Fatouche family in certain part of, of my city. They're demanding to deliver the bodyguards that basically hit that woman. So yeah. that's at the very clan level. Tribe levels a little bit higher up than that. Would you talk about your tribe, which is part of your background, your identity, and maybe your vision for the future, too, rooted in the past? Yes. Uh, my tribe, the Ghassanid, brought Christianity to the Middle East. And the mother of the emperor who uh, adopted Christianity was a Ghassanid as well. So that gave me real pride. And on my mother's side, I'm a Phoenician as well. Elisar is famous for leading her men into Carthage. So on both sides, I think I, <laughs> I, I'm, I have good DNA. <laughs> and we talk about personal DNA, but there's social DNA as well. So I, I really think that memetics is all about the social DNA that's mm -hmm. out there, which is constantly modifying and evolving as well, right? That's so true. Most of Lebanon now is regressing, really, to purple-red, basically, tribal and feudal lords. They are feudal lords, really, because they're clan leaders, and if you don't vote for the za'im or the clan leader, you're shunned by your family, and vice versa. Now we have March 14th and March 8th, and whomever votes for March 8th will never vote for March 14th. They don't present you with an agenda, be it March 8th or March 14th. And the people in Lebanon follow blindly because they have the, the allegiance towards the Za'im. Explain to me what March 8th or 14th um, means. What does that mean? March 8th is a coalition of Hezbollah, General Aoun, and some Armenians. And March 14th is uh, Samir Jaja, Amin Jmayil, and this Fatouche guy. The funny thing is they both embezzled money. They both did not serve the public well. And it's really unfortunate that we keep electing the same people over and over again. So these are two competing leaderships within... 
Within the Lebanese society, yes. Within the Lebanese society. Yes. And you said people are regressing, and that, that brings up an important point. The way that I read memonomics and was reading the theory is this spiral, you're constantly mounting the spiral. Sometimes you get stopped at certain points. But you're speaking of actual regression. Regression. There, there yes. can be rise and fall. Yes, absolutely. Because we can regress on the spiral or we can advance to the next level of complexity on the spiral. But I feel in Lebanon, they're coming from the red value system or the feudal lord value system. And they don't care. They resist by partying, by the way. So they have the best party place in the world that rivals, uh, by the way, Dubai. Mm -hmm. okay. And I don't know if you know anything about Dubai. Well, I do want you to talk about that in a little bit. But first, I want to talk about a couple other elements to yes. get us to that point. Your book is called Emerge the Rise of Functional Democracy and the Future of the Middle East. And the part that really grabbed me, the reason I wanted to have you on, is because you're so intimately involved in working with the future of the Middle East, particularly of Palestine, uh, Israel, with that, that conflict. And we'll get to that soon. Sure. But you use that phrase, functional democracy. And when, as soon as I read that phrase, you know what I thought? as opposed to what we have in the USA right now, which is pretty dysfunctional. What do you mean by functional democracy? Functional democracy, it's the democracy that fits. It's a governance that fits as well. What we have in the United States, we have Democrats and Republicans. Basically, Republicans are blue-orange, meaning order-driven and enterprising or strategic, and Democrats are really uh, becoming green or egalitarian. And as uh, Dr. Beck says, progressive is one thing. You, you need to get over it because they're holding on to their progressive agenda. But also it, it is one thing. They, ha they have to get over it. And the Republicans, they're, they're repealing Obamacare. They're they're doing havocs, uh, havoc now that their majority in the Senate and... Uh, and in the in House the, as well. Yes. So they're waiting for another Republican to come to the presidency, unfortunately. And it's becoming the, uh, a real dysfunction in our democracy. It's really a pity. So you would describe the Democrats as on the green-leaning edge of things. The Republicans on the orange, the enterprising, or order-driven? Uh, order-driven because the, you have the Tea Party. They're very order-driven, and they listen to their leaders. If their leaders are making them afraid of President Obama, they will be afraid of him. The Tea Party is blue. It's order-driven. The Republicans are very strategic, very orange, very enterprising. Something that our listeners should be aware of, even though there is some kind of a hierarchy here from the tribal to feudal to order-driven to enterprising to egalitarian, humanitarian, and on up, even though there is some kind of a hierarchy, all societies include elements of all of these, and the important thing is how they work together and interact. You can't have just one to the neglect of the other. Is that an accurate statement about yes. memetics? Absolutely, absolutely. And what we need in the States, uh, we need a superordinate goal for all Americans. 
and a superordinate goal, both parties have to work together to achieve that superordinate goal. For example, a summit on the child, that would be a superordinate goal. It involves law enforcement, it's a meshwork solutions, basically. It involves law enforcement, educational systems, healthcare systems, the laws of the land, etc., etc. So a summit on the child will be a superordinate goal for our democracy. And what we mean by superordinate goal is a goal that is common to all these different levels of emergence so that they can all work together. Yes. For example, if, if I'm advising President Obama, I would say, what would work for the Tea Party? What would work for the Republicans? And what would work for the Democrats? We have to address the various levels of value systems in our country before we, we address foreign policy, for example. I don't mean to be too politically divisive here, but I do think that there is a real problematic viewpoint. The way I, I've heard the Republican viewpoint is, mm-hmm. yes, they want it for themselves. If it's good for Obama, they oppose it. That would be like if Obama said, well, if it's good for the Tea Party, then I oppose it. Then there is no way forward together. We definitely have a jam log in Washington, D.C., definitely. And I don't know what's going to burst that bubble, that jam. I really don't know. But I'm still hopeful. I believe in the human spirit. Well, let's talk about a little bit of the background that gets you to where you are working in Palestine. And actually, at the moment, you're in Kuwait. Are you there for fun and frolic or are you there for work? No, for work. This is how I make my living. So you're consulting with a company there perhaps at this point? Yes, I am. We'll ask a little bit more about how you deal with corporations using these theories and these methods of emergence. But things, for me, got really interesting when I read about Don Beck and South Africa. Could you give me a synopsis of what happened with him working with South Africa? He visited South Africa during the span of 10 years, back in the 90s till, I think, 2000. He was able to work with Mandela and the clerk, And he would pick up the phone and call the clerk. That was what South Africa was like back in the days. He advised the clerk when he needs to release Mandela from Robben Island. And he was behind the scenes. If you've seen the movie Invictus, he wrote seven games for glory to create a euphoria in South Africa because they became all South Africans. And because Mandela wore the the green jacket, so they became all South Africans. And he wrote Seven Games to Glory for Coach Christie. I don't think uh, Coach Christie was portrayed well in Invictus, nor Dr. Beck was portrayed in, in Invictus. But they focused more on the rugby player. But he was one of the architects behind the scenes, moving South Africa from apartheid. And I think what we learned from that situation is that there's a vital role that spiral dynamics could play in helping a country find a better future. Absolutely. When he went back last year, they gave him an award as a recognition for his role in the transition from apartheid in South Africa. Let's talk about your work in the Middle East and what got you involved going back there. Of course, Lebanon is home for you. I think maybe you were already consulting a number of companies, corporations in that area. 
before you got involved in the Build Palestine initiative? Yes, definitely. I came for a visit and my friend Rabia told me it's very important that you come to Kuwait. So I came to Kuwait. Since then, I've been consulting with one company. It's been 10 years. I was with this company since April 2010. But before, I came many times since 2003 and I was consulting with a chairperson uh, who's a woman, by the way. But in 2010, it was the official date, so I came into, into the company, and basically we cleaned house. There was red leaders who were running the show, and we were able to really create a habitat for these red leaders to move away from this company. And little by little, we were able to right the ship, meaning creating the blue, and eventually, we were able to emerge into more orange complexity or more enterprising and strategic complexity. It took us four to five years to do that. And that's an important element in moving people forward in spiral dynamics is you actually have to go through the stages of evolution. You don't go from being an amoeba to being a full-blown human being. You have to go through the intermediate levels. Absolutely. And you cannot skip a stage. Even cultures cannot skip a stage. You move people from unhealthy red to healthy red. And then you create the habitat that has processes and procedures, rules and regulations. And eventually you can ride the ship, meaning you create order. And eventually we're able to create more orange complexity, depending on where you are in the world. This region cannot handle lots of orange complexity, and the industry therein also cannot handle lots of orange complexity. I'll have to remember to remind our listeners all along the way what these colors connect with, but we'll get to back to that. Again, the place that they'll find that is by going to the book Emerge by Elsa Malouf. It is Emerge, the Rise of Functional Democracy and the Future of the Middle East. She's my guest here today for Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production, on the web at northernspiritradio.org. And on that site, you'll find nine and a half years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find links to our guests, so you'll find a link to Elsa Malouf through integralinsights.net, integralinsights.net. Also on that site, you'll find comments that previous listeners have posted, and we'd love to have you add yours because we love two-way communication. There's also a donate button so you can support us. Click on support, and you will be able to make a donation, or you can mail it to us if you wish. That's how this program is funded. Even more than that, I want to encourage you to start out by supporting your local community radio station. Community radio brings you a slice of news and of music that you get nowhere else on the American airwaves. And so start out by supporting them. Again, Elsa Malouf is our guest here today. You're a lawyer, Elsa, amongst yes. other things. But you're mm-hmm. also, you're, you work as a consultant. Is that an evolution of your work or a sideline? It is an evolution of my work. Yeah, I, I can't practice law in the U.S. because it's the Napoleon Code. So I can practice it in Louisiana, for example, but I don't want to practice in Louisiana. <laughs> so you act as a consultant, and you've been doing that in the Middle East. But somewhere yeah. along the way, you got involved in the Build Palestine initiatives. Talk about how you got there. 
So two conscious human beings were sitting in the Yemeni quarter in Tel Aviv, Neri Baron and Rafi Nasser. They talked about Don to bring Don to Israel and Palestine so he can do the work that he's done in South Africa. They came to New York and they talked to Don and Don told them, send me an email. They sent him an email. Don called John Smith, who sponsored us for the first few trips to Israel and Palestine. He's a home builder in Omaha. He has no clue where Israel and Palestine exist, really. But uh, he sponsored us with his great heart. And Don called me and he goes, uh, do you want to come with me to Israel? I said, sure. <laughs> and, I, and then I hang up. I looked at Said. I said, Israelis are the enemies and Palestinians are the enemies. <laughs> I descended to my ethnocentric self immediately. But it took me like a few minutes to, to get over it, really. But I realized that I can contribute to the understanding of Arabs, uh, to the Israelis in particular. So I said yes, and then we went there. And I, I need to guide you to page 160 in the book, where you see uh, the first two trips we listened. We, listen, we listened with empathy, because that's the first thing that we do. We listen to their life conditions, even though I'm a student of the history of the Middle East, and I keep up with the updates, of course, but I had to listen. I listened to the Israelis, I listened to the Palestinians, and we listened with, with empathy, as I said, and we listened to their life conditions, we listened to what they told us about their mimetic codes, and we understood their mindsets and worldviews, we understood their suffering, we understood their pain as well. Also, we supported them in the next few trips, we supported them in creating systems and structures. And the last thing we looked at is behavior and actions. And as you can see from page 160, where the peace accords are, if you have the book in front of you. I do have it in front of me. So if people get a hold of the book, Emerge, the rise of functional democracy in the future of the Middle East, they'll be able to follow some of this detail. Really, the first half of the book is talking about the theoretical scaffolding that mm -hmm. underlies, that supports this work. And the second half gets much more into the practical realm, which is the part that really grabbed me, having been exposed already to the theoretical framework before. Actually, we called our initiative, eventually we called our initiative the Build Palestine Initiatives. The meme started spreading in the West Bank and eventually Salam Fayyad, who was the prime minister at that time, says the exercise of getting ready for statehood was a concern for some as it represented unilateralism by the Palestinians. I'm here to tell everyone it is indeed unilateralism, as it should be, because it's about building a Palestinian state. It's about getting ready for Palestinian statehood. If we Palestinians don't build it, who's going to build it for us? And that was in Herzliya Conference on Strategic Governance in Israel, February 3rd, 2010. So these memes seeped in the culture. Now I understood how Dr. Beck did the work in South Africa. Even now, they still have those memes in the culture.
So you started into this work. You first sit with a, a couple friends. You get the taste of something in the future. Don Beck's going to help you. You're going to go work together. But I got the idea that you got first up to your ankles and then your knees, and then pretty soon you're up to your neck. For, for four years, you worked really hard on this. Pro bono, I think. Yes, definitely pro bono. At the end, it culminated in a summit on building Palestine. It was a huge conference. It was a meshwork solutions, really. And Bjarni, our friend in Iceland, was inspired by our meshwork solutions, by our nation-building exercise. He was inspired, and he did the same in his country. It culminated in a summit where Nafiz asked for very little money, really. And he said, we're going to pay people. We're going to create a human Facebook. Five people will tell 10 people. 10 people will tell 15 people. So they created a human Facebook that really circulated throughout the West Bank and Gaza. And we were expecting 500 people. I think 1,200 people showed up by, by the end of it. And I told Don, I said, how can we feed those people? He said, just give me a fish and a loaf of bread. <laughs> He was in Bethlehem, by the way. <laughs> Did you feed them all? <laughs> I don't think it's, it would have worked. <laughs> Maybe, so you're saying Don Beck is not exactly Jesus. Okay. No, of course not. not. <laughs> <laughs> but it was funny. But my sense is that that culmination event that happened in, I think, 2008, that you had been working for four years up to there, all of a sudden you've got more than a thousand people coming together with considerable energy. It's such a promising launching point. What happened then? We ran out of funds, unfortunately, because of the financial crisis and charities are the last thing to get money. So it was really unfortunate. I am still in touch with two colleagues, uh, Neri Baron and Nafiz, Nafiz Rifai. I'm always in touch with them. And I'm hoping I, we can go back. They want us to go back, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed to go back. Part of the depletion of funds was your own personal funds. I mean, you had done this pro bono for these four years. When Don Beck was working in South Africa, he did a fair amount of pro bono free work, unpaid. Yes. But then there were sponsors, and corporate sponsors even, who said, for the future of this region, we need this for our prospering to happen. You couldn't find those people in Palestine, Israel? No, we could not, unfortunately. The Afrikaners, especially Steel and Alloy, helped Dr. Beck. But Israelis couldn't help us. Because I don't think they bought in into that idea that we are doing the best thing that can ever happen to Israel. They couldn't accept it. They talked about scenarios. They talked about different uh, aspects. They tried everything under the sun, but they couldn't buy in into our theory. And it, it was really unfortunate. Very unfortunate, especially for the global financial crisis that happened in 2008 to, to cut the legs from underneath you. I want to talk a little bit about the process that led up to 2008 People can, again, read the book, Emerge, The Rise of Functional Democracy in the Future of the Middle East by Elsa Malouf. You'll find a whole lot of things that we can't possibly cover in this hour. 
one of the things that you do is you start doing that listening, that gathering of information, and in particular, yeah. you recruit indigenous intelligence experts. They do their work. They gather a lot of information. They are very often people right from the area, so they have an inside view of the culture and the people. And then they bring the information they've got, and they hand it to the integral design architect. Architects, yes. Are you, are you an architect? Yes, I am an integral design architect. And Nafiz, for example, and Neri in Israel are integral design architects. So let me just say what the indigenous intelligence is. Uh, indigenous intelligence, Mark, is the multidimensional capacity of an individual or a group in a specific society to interpret its value system's complexity to non-natives. And also it informs governance by assessing the life conditions of the people and the challenges they face. And you can read uh, the indigenous intelligence experts. They're most likely natives of the territory. They earned their ranks because they were once flamethrowers and zealots. So once they become more enterprising, they earn the respect of their peers as well. You used a phrase, flamethrowers, and so I think we need to have you talk about the value systems assimilation contrast effect model, because flamethrowers, zealots, ideologues, moderates, pragmatists, conciliators, all of those things are important to understand the mechanism with how you can actually move a country forward. Could you talk about that? In particular, I'd like you to reflect how that is on the landscape in the USA right now. Yes, so it is the intra-conflict that fuels the inter-conflict. For example, Rush Limbaugh calls moderate Republicans rhinos, uh, Republican by name only. And I don't know what they call moderate Democrats. I, I, I'm not sure about that. But see, Rush Limbaugh is the extreme in the Republican Party. And I believe, I'm not sure, maybe Rachel Maddow is the extreme in the Democratic Party. So these are, and I don't know if people like Rachel Maddow or not, I'm, I'm not sure, but these are the flamethrowers and the zealots. For example, the Tea Party, it has a range of people. It's the mailman, it's the small business owner, it's Sarah Palin. <laughs> By the way, Sarah Palin wanted President Obama to attack Ebola. I don't know how he was going to attack Ebola, but yeah, that's another story. <laughs> and so is Sarah Palin a flamethrower, a zealot, or an ideologue? She's a zealot for her own cause. And can you point to someone who would be an ideologue or a moderate pragmatist? McCain is a pragmatist. I think he's defending now the CIA, but he used to be a pragmatist. And on the other side, I think Pelosi is a pragmatist. Yeah, actually... Elizabeth Warren is a pragmatist. And she, as opposed to a conciliator. She is a pragmatist, yes. She's not a conciliator because she's attacking the bankers. She's attacking Jamie Diamond. She doesn't want anything to do with Citigroup. Her latest article is, we need to stand up to Citigroup. I'd really love to see you do some good social engineering on the United States government because it looks rather hopeless at the moment. They really need your help, you know, also. You and Saeed together should join up with Don Beck and make it happen. Yeah, it'd be our pleasure. My interest mostly is foreign policy and the focus on indigenous intelligence because if we use the indigenous intelligence properly, 
especially in the Middle East. For example, President al-Sisi is doing a marvelous job in his country. He's creating 15 industrial cities. And you better mention which country it is because people won't recognize the oh, name. This is the so United States, you know, where we're extremely ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> you know how bad it is, right? <laughs> okay, sorry for that. <laughs> no, no. Hey, I, I, uh, lived, I lived in Africa, right? And I just had my sister yeah. give me an email yesterday. She said, oh, yeah, well, what, what country were you in and in, in where in Africa? And this is my <laughs> sister who 35 years ago, I was, I mean, she didn't know. Okay, good. It's, aye, aye, aye. And, she's, okay. and she's motivated and interested. And that, so that represents <laughs> the good end of things. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. So uh, in Egypt, President al-Sisi, who's now the president of Egypt, the Egyptian historically hold the army in high regards. And they trusted to create and protect national institutions. So what al-Sisi is doing his development plan is calling on creating 15 new industrial cities, reviving the tourism sector, improving trade and foreign investment, and introducing many economic reforms that, of course, the Muslim Brotherhood wouldn't know how to, where to begin, really. So this is a forward-thinking autocrat who's looking to bring his people to meet the global standards of the economy and also to prosper. Another example, Singapore, Lee, under Lee Kuan Yew. He started with that, with that blue, with that order, with that ordered autocracy. And can you talk about other Arab nations and how they're developing going forward? You give a couple good examples in Emerge. Now that the oil is really disappearing, it takes $50 to extract oil from the land. So I feel there are three issues in the Arab world. As I mentioned, the deeply rooted tribal allegiance to clan leaders or za'ims who hold nepotistic power for many generations and are not afraid to use brutal force against moderate voices. So the proof is in the pudding. It, it's really what happened in my town, Zahli. And also, for example, the sudden appearance of oil uh, which really propagated the fallacy of wealth in the hands of few. And it became a symbol of modernity. And Mark, this is what leads to an arrested cultural progress. And it leads to culture-wide sense of entitlement and really complacency. So I'm going to read here, based on the, the available data from the World Bank, region-wide per capita income is less than $700. Yeah, with oil contributing to 70% of that amount, imagine. And it's region-wide. Uh, so imagine what's happening now in Syria. They're living on, on less than $2 a day. And so when the oil income dies out, there will be no infrastructure there. They'll have total economic collapse, even worse than what they've got currently. Absolutely, absolutely. That's why, for example, uh, King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia pumped $40 billion in the economy. And here in Kuwait, they're, they're doing more Kuwaitization. They're putting Kuwaitis in as managers of restaurants. In Saudi Arabia, they're doing a Saudization. Also, they're trying to put more Saudis to work because gas and oil is really dwindling in, in this part of the world. Are there other countries in the Middle East that are particularly shining stars for 
hopeful future for the Middle East? Tunisia. Tunisia is a great example. The Muslim Brotherhood are very moderate and they came to power, but they're really moderate because Tunisia was ruled by the French and it's almost a modern state. The three monarchies in the Arab world, Morocco, King Abdullah of Jordan, King Abdullah of, of Saudi Arabia, are really elegant. They are the caretakers of the land and the caretakers of their people as well. They're honored by their people. Yes, there will be extremes in every country, but I think they're doing a good job. In Morocco, uh, the king, King Mohammed VI, change the constitution to allow more freedom for the people. And King Abdullah of Jordan tried to bring the tribes, and they are Al-Qaeda, to the elections, but they refused. And uh, the king in Saudi Arabia is really pumped $40 billion in the economy to help young people, especially millennials, to get jobs. As you know, Elsa, from having lived in the United States, you you know that we're not well-informed, and that's being very generous to say it that weekly. We're not well-informed about governments and history in the Arab. We've got very limited ideas of what that is all about. You flushed that out considerably in the book. Would you mind sharing a little passage, give us a little bit more of an idea of a more enlightened perspective about what's true in the Arab world? There was Al-Jahiliya, or pre-Islam, it's from 300 BC to 600 AD, it's tribal, heroic values, etc., band of nomads. And there was the Islamic Renaissance, especially in Andalusia, where Islam follows in the tradition of Hellenistic philosophy, intellectual discourse and inclusion. In Andalusia, Muslims lived in harmony with Christians and Jews. And culture thrived while Europe stagnated. And come Al-Ghazali doctrine, Al-Ghazali incoherence of the philosophers, he stopped. He stopped the interpretation of Islam. And Al-Wahhabis are coming from Al-Ghazali. It's, it's really unfortunate. And there was the colonial mandate and also the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but also, I had a front row seat to Arab nationalism. And I, I would like to read a small passage. In its initial phases, Arab nationalism was culturally defined by one's ability to hurl insults at the imperialists, including the United States. As a child, I remember my uncle taking me to the meetings of the Syrian National Party, one of many Arab nationalist parties in Lebanon. The Syrian National Party sought to reunite Syria and Lebanon under one flag. During those meetings, attendees escalated the rhetoric to levels where I thought military action was imminent. Shouts came from every corner of the room. Those imperialist dogs, and that's an insult to dogs, by the way, have not felt the <laughs> That's an insult to dogs? <laughs> yeah. have, have not felt the wrath of the Arabs and we will slaughter them all. Then, coffee was served with freshly made baklava, and we all went home. The scene repeated many times over, and nothing was ever accomplished. I loved when I went with my uncle, and nothing happened later on. So that's my story about Arab nationalism, because it was a Western idea. Michel Afla created the Ba'ath Party, and Antoine Saadi created the Syrian National Party. 
but it was foreign to our region. They brought Western ideas that were foreign to our region because they did not understand the lay of the land. They did not understand the purple, uh, the tribal and feudal aspect of our culture. I'm afraid that even with your book, my knowledge is still very thin. But fortunately, you've raised my level of intelligence by your book, Emerge, The Rise of Functional Democracy in the Future of the Middle East. Elsa, I'm really impressed by your dedication, four years of working, and your devotion. I wonder what inspires such deep devotion, such work. Is it your Catholicism growing up? Is it part of your tribe? What is it that has uh, informed you and sustained you in this work? It's really simple, Mark. I feel if I was a little girl in Lebanon, in, in that small town, Zahli, and someone came to me and said, how can I help you? I just want to help those kids. There's a picture in front of uh, page 122 that says it all for me. It's really about those children. It's about the education of those children and really about creating a middle class in the Arab world. Because Lebanese, Palestinians and Jordanians are the middle class in the oil-rich uh, countries. But we need to create middle class. We need to invest uh, in the middle class and allow those millennials to become middle class in, this, in those countries, in the oil-rich countries, so we can invest in our human resources, our women as well. We, we really need to support women. Women with high school degrees in the Arab world are 83%. W women with college degrees are 27%. So the, and the illiteracy rates amongst women are 60 to 70 percent. So we need to get rid of this illiteracy. We need to give women more college degrees because to whom much is given, much is asked. So this is why I come back to the Middle East. And it's a no-brainer. Well, I wouldn't say it's a no-brainer. You've got some very good brains that you've been applying to this, along with compatriots like Saeed Dalabani, Don Beck, and many other great workers for peace and for future, for prosperity, for not just the region of the Middle East. They're, they're helping in the United States, South Africa, everywhere else. I Absolutely. really appreciate so deeply your work. The book, Emerge, The Rise of Functional Democracy in the Future of the Middle East, Elsa Malouf, you can find the link on northernspiritradio.org. Her site, integralinsights.net, is probably the best place to go and learn more. Thank you so much, Elsa, for all of your work and for joining me here today for Spirit in Action. I really thank you, Mark. Thank you for inviting me, and best of luck. And with our last minutes today on Spirit in Action, I want to leave you with music that's kind of tangentially related to the broad sweep of human and evolutionary emergence that Elsa Malouf addresses. But this song has us look at a slice of human history from the point of view of an oak tree. The song touches me deeply, and maybe it will say something for you. The song's by Jonathan Bird, and it's called I Was an Oak Tree. See you next week for Spirit in Action. I was an oak tree It took a thousand years to grow And I've seen kingdoms come and go I've seen the losers turn to lords and back again I held the rebels when they hung them from my limbs 
When men of fortune cast their futures on the sea It's when they came for me And I was a slave ship Under the standard of the cross A hallelujah holocaust And half were dead before we reached the other shore And the captain never saw the coming storm That swept around the Cape and took us by surprise And only eight survived And I was a campfire A pile of driftwood in the sand The only comfort in this land And eight hungry sailors roasted acorns that they'd found And left me burning as they stumbled toward the sound Of a church bell ringing out above the ocean's wind And I was born again I am an oak tree Out along the wild Cape Fear And there is talk of freedom here Where is the kingdom that was here before I came? Where have the people gone who only left their names? A revolution's just a circle after all And every kingdom falls I'm an oak tree If it takes a thousand years to grow I'll see kingdoms come and go I see kingdoms come and go The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.